Good morning. Uh, my name is Jesse Holmes. I serve as the discipleship pastor here at Crawford Avenue, and I have the honor of beginning our seven-week series entitled Joy. Uh, now, for those of you that have been with us long, or maybe this is your first time, uh, for the past two years now, we've been preaching through various sermon series that help us to dive deep into our church's mission statement, which is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy live, and proclaim the gospel. So we're now entering into a season where for the next six months until December, we're going to be looking at what it means to enjoy the gospel as disciples of Jesus Christ. So for the next seven weeks, we'll be studying the letter of Philippians to understand what it means to experience joy as a community of the gospel. Our goal isn't to fully exposit all of Philippians in the next seven sermons, but what we hope to accomplish is to exposit the text to reveal the theme of joy which runs throughout the letter. Now, when we speak of joy, like as we're going to be talking about joy, uh, it's really important to understand that we're not talking about an emotion or a feeling. Uh, We're talking about an attitude that is granted to us who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, It's an attitude that's commanded an attitude that's expected, an attitude that, if we're honest, seems to go away in times of hardship and doubt. In our text today, I believe that Paul models that the body of Christ is a means of God's grace to stir up this God-given joy that resides within us no matter the circumstance. So again, from our text today, what I hope for us to see is that God, that God desires, that He is giving us this grace of the gathered body of believers to stir up His joy that He has placed in us, no matter the circumstance. So our time today in the Word, we're not giving attention to specific circumstances and hardships of life, and we're not even going to talk through, like, what does it mean to have joy and what that looks like, but our attention is solely going to be fixated on where this joy comes from. And in our passage today, what we will see that Paul is teaching is that the gathered body of believers, that is the source of joy, one of the sources of joy for the believer. So we'll be in Philippians chapter 1, um, verses 1 through 11. Uh, We're going to read that right now. If you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, it is found on page 980. 980. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus." And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Let us go to the Lord in prayer.
Gracious Father, uh, we need your help right now. Uh, As we study your word, we ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you will teach us the truths in your word that we might apply it to our lives and walk in such a way that makes you known to the nations around us. Will you bless our our time right now? Uh, Open our eyes that we may see, our ears that we may hear, and Lord, will you make our hearts sensitive to the word of truth? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, the church of Philippi was established by the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter. Uh, Acts chapter 16, which I would encourage all of you to spend some time reading that uh, this week as we go through our sermon series in Philippians, it gives a detailed account of Paul's time in Philippi. And just in short, um, what happens, Paul has a dream where this dude is like, hey, come over here, and he's in Macedonia. It's like, hey, come over here. And so Paul makes his way to Macedonia, which is the region where Philippi is located. There he meets a woman named Lydia, and she is a woman of faith and a seller of purple. And upon hearing the gospel, Lydia and her entire household are saved, and then her home becomes one of the gathering places for the believers there. Later, uh, after a mishap with a girl that's possessed with a demon, Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown in prison. And this story might be familiar. While he's in prison, they sing praises to God, and an earthquake takes place, and then all the gates start to open up. Now, the jailer, the one who's in charge of the jail, he's in there, and he is very nervous. His job is to make sure that prisoners do not leave, and it's easy for prisoners to leave when the doors are open, right? So he is despondent, he is distressed, the doors are all open, and Paul and Silas says, hey man, everything is okay. And Paul shares the gospel with him, and he and his entire household are saved. We see that Paul's ministry in Philippi is fruitful. He shares the gospel, and people come to know who the Lord is, and the ministry grows. And though his time was cut short in Philippi, we see that Paul developed close relationships with those that made up the church. They were more than just converts. They were more than just another church that was planted. They became his family, and he loved them and cared for them deeply. For us today, the church, the gathered body of believers, is a means of God's grace in which believers mature in their faith through the instruction of Scripture where they're challenged and encouraged to walk in obedience to that Scripture, where they're equipped to go and proclaim that Scripture to others. And repeatedly in Scripture, we find that the church is referred to as family, and yet we treat the church and church folk as an inconvenience at times. And we gather and we see our gathering time as a chore or a box to check, and the people that are around us are just an acquaintance instead of close relationships. When service is done, we play this cool game called Dodge the People, and we try to avoid as many people as possible to make our ways out of the doors so that we may get about our own business. But the Lord has put us in each other's lives for His glory, the advancement of the gospel, and for our good. And like I said before, Paul is going to model to us that there is great joy that comes when we see this gathering time as more than just a task to accomplish— but it's a family that he has brought together. And so our text this morning is broken up into three parts, because what we will find is that Paul expresses this joy that he has for believers in three ways. The first way, which we will look at verses three through six, is simply this, Paul's joyful gratitude for the Philippians. 
Paul expresses his joy through a joyful gratitude for the Philippians. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. As Paul is sitting in prison, this is a prison epistle. Paul is in prison at Rome at this time. There are so many things that Paul could be thinking about. I mean, just imagine you're sitting in prison. You don't know what's going to happen next. Paul could have been thinking and praying about his own hardship. Paul could have been thinking and praying about the literal chains that were around him. Paul could have been thinking and processing and praying about what's coming up next. But what verse 3 reveals to us is that Paul is thinking about those people that make up the body of Christ. Pay attention to what he says. He says, always, every, you all with joy. He's not throwing up a quick shout out in prayer, saying, hey, Lord, take care of the Philippians as a whole. He's not uh, praying for them and kind of putting that at the end of a prayer of depression. But while Paul is sitting in prison, he is thinking about the people that the Lord has blessed him with. You know what's happening in the midst of that? He is experiencing joyful gratitude. So the question, first question is simply this, well, what is Paul grateful for? You know, why is it that Paul, as he's in the midst of prison, he's dealing with literal chains, he doesn't know when he's going to die, he doesn't know if he's going to get out, why is it that in the midst of this, that he is thinking about the body of Christ? Well, the first reason that we see here is because there was a partnership. He says, always, verse, verse 3, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, this partnership is not like, hey, we're walking together and we're accomplishing this task together. But in the Greek, the word partnership, and we're going to see this later on, is implying fellowship, an intimate fellowship. So what Paul is saying here, that these believers that are in this church, they're not just people that he hung out with for a short period of time. They're not just people that he shared the gospel with for a short period of time, but they now have fellowship together, and they are intimately involved with one another. That is Paul's relationship with the church. But he doesn't just say partnership, right? Uh, We have this prepositional phrase. I love prepositional phrases. They're not just a partnership, but it's a partnership in the gospel. And so what this prepositional phrase does is it explains to us what is the foundation of their partnership? What is the support of their fellowship? What is their relationship grounded on? And it is simply the gospel. That's what their partnership is all about. That's what their relationship is all about. It is about the gospel. It's centered on the gospel, and it's sustained by the gospel. The gospel is what unites and sustains and helps us to move forward. And it's a simple truth that in the beginning, God created all things, including the first man and the first woman, and all was good. 
But then good turn to bad when the first man and woman decide that to disobey God and then brought sin and pain and suffering and death into the world. But God himself provided the means of freedom from the bondage of sin that was through the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And so for those who repent of their sin and confess Jesus Christ as Lord, I mean, they experience freedom from the bondage of sin, but then they are able to walk in obedience to Jesus' command, and they're not alone. Because as God has transformed them on the inside, he has then called them together in the context of a family, and so they walk in obedience together. This is the gospel. And this is the gospel that led to this joyful fellowship and partnership between Paul and the church. But not only that, but we see that Paul is grateful for the work that God has done and will do in them. He continues on, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so in this, most commentators agree that you can see both a God's great work is their initial salvation, them coming to know the Lord, but then the sustainment of their fellowship together. And so both of those things are at work. And the beauty of what Paul is talking about, as he is sitting there in chains, in prison, he's thinking about the Philippians. And in oftentimes where we might be stressed and frustrated and worried and concerned, what's going to happen to them? Who's going to look after them? Are they going to keep walking faithfully? Are they going to make it? Paul's joy is found in the simple fact that he who began a great work— Paul recognizes that the work did not begin with him. He did not produce the converts in Philippi. It wasn't, it wasn't him that transformed their hearts, but it was the work of God. God did it. They're in good hands. And so Paul is joyful because he thinks about his people, and he knows that God himself is the one that has been doing the work and brought them to where they are. But not only that— what God, God starts, he will also finish. And so Paul is experiencing this great joy as he's thinking about the Philippians because the simple fact is, even with Paul not being there, even though Paul is not able to interact and continue to teach and to preach and to lead them, Paul recognizes that he did not start it, and it's not up to him if it's completed. It's up to the Lord. And so Paul, in this moment of being imprisoned, Man, his confidence is not in himself or his work, but his confidence is solely in the work of God. And so Paul is able to experience great joy, though he is far away and cannot personally check in on them, because God is the one that's at work. And so no wonder Paul is experiencing great joy, because he knows without a doubt that his people will be taken care of. And in this moment of loneliness and despair, Paul turns his heart and attention to the work of Christ, the work of Christ in them. And what that does is it stirs up the joy in Paul to help him to continue to move forward. Are you close enough to the body of Christ that you're able to be stirred up with joy when you start thinking about the people around you? Do you have an intimate enough relationship with the people in front of you and behind you and next to you that in your weakest moments and in your most hardship, 
that you don't have to think about you getting out of the situation, or you don't have to think about things being better, but you just think about sister so-and-so and brother so-and-so. You think about the ones that have poured into you and you poured into them, and then it just starts to well up with great joy in you, and you're like, I can keep going. I can keep persevering. The church is meant to be filled with intimate partners for the sake of the gospel. Next. Next we see that Paul is filled with joyful affection for the Philippians. Paul is filled with joyful affections toward the Philippians. Now, there's a natural progression that we see here from the verses above. So Paul is in prison. He is remembering and thanking God for the relationship that he had with the Philippians. He is thanking and praising God because of their partnership in the gospel. He's thinking about what they did and what they're doing now in their relationship. He's thinking about the work that God had done in them and will continue to do until the end. And so the natural progression then is to have some feelings going on inside, having some affection welling up in his heart. This is what we find in verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He begins by saying, it is right for me to feel this way about you all. So what he is saying in this verse is, it makes sense for me to have joy. It makes sense for me to talk this way. It makes perfect sense. And this is why. I hold you in my heart. Now, Paul is not sweet-talking them, right? He's, he's not doing a Valentine's Day card. He's not writing that up to them. He's not trying to make them feel good. Paul is communicating the depth of the relationship that he has with those that he has been entrusted to by God. He's not just throwing around the phrase, I love you, like we do so often. Paul is communicating that he has stored up each of them by name in the very center of his physical and emotional being. When he says that they are in his heart, he means it. He means it, like they're all in there. When you do that, you think about them often. And so no wonder at the end of most of Paul's letters, I'm amazed that he's able to say all of these names. Uh, Romans, for example, Romans chapter 16, he has this long list of names of people that he's commending and saying, pray for and greet for. Why? How is it possible that Paul is able to remember all these people because they're not just names on a church roll, they're names that are written in his heart. They're not just people that were here today and gone the next day. But he has an intimate relationship with them and they are in his heart. What a risk for us, right? I think that's why there's a lack of intimacy in the church, because it is a great risk to allow people to come into your heart. And if you're like me, trusting people does not come easy. And people will break your heart, right? People will abandon you. They will betray you. They will hurt you. And Paul himself even experienced that. When you compare his letters, you see that there was a young man named Demas that he commended in one. 
Man, Demas is my homeboy. He's, he's doing a great job. He's walking faithfully. But then later on, I'm sad for Demas because Demas has abandoned me because he has loved the world more. Paul knows this hardship, but it doesn't stop him from uh, allowing people to enter into his heart. He doesn't allow those past hurts to harden his heart and create a separation between him and the people that God has entrusted to him. But what Paul does is he willingly lays aside his selfishness to display an attitude that was exactly like Jesus Christ, exactly what Jesus Christ modeled in his ministry. So you see, when Paul plants churches, he plants them in a physical location, but then also plants them in his own heart. Are you writing the names of the people that you are intimate with in the household of God on your heart? So much so that while you're driving down the street, their name comes up and you pray for them? That while you're walking in the grocery store, you see them and you're excited to go and find out what's going on? Are they written in your heart so that you send them a random text and say, hey, how's it going? Are they written in your heart so that you call them up and say, hey, let's go get coffee together? Let me see what the Lord is doing in your life. That's what it looks like for the people of God to be written on our hearts. And Paul models this, that in the midst of him being in some really intense hardship, being in prison, man, he's thinking not about himself, but he's thinking about all those people that the Lord entrusted to him. Now, not only that, we see this word partners come up again, but in a different form. He says that you were partakers with me of grace. So again, Paul is emphasizing that they weren't just people over there that did a certain thing at a certain time, but they had an intimate relationship in that they partnered in the ministry of the gospel. So when he says partners with me of grace, he's talking about the grace that comes from the proclamation of the gospel and then even the suffering that comes with the gospel. Well, how do we know this? He says, both in my imprisonment. During this day and time, and also in our time, it's embarrassing to be in prison. Like, nobody, nobody celebrates going to prison. And so in this time period, you would not have a conversation with someone in prison. You're not going to say, hey, my boy Paul, he's in prison. You don't just strike up those conversations. It's embarrassing. But did the church in Philippi shrink back? Did they run away? Did they abandon him? No. Actually, we'll find out later on in the letter, man, they actually send him gifts. They give him financial support. They're thinking and they're praying, and they put their prayers to action because they can't all visit him, but they send a representative, representative to go visit him and give him the things that he needs. And so they're great partners. They're intimate. And so, a quick side note, and we prove our intimacy with one another through our actions and not just our words, and especially not just by saying, hey, I'm going to be praying for you. Anybody can just say those things, but when you are deeply intimate with someone else, you go beyond just your words. It leads you to action, and oftentimes it's action of sacrifice. Second, we see that they partnered with him in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So not only did they not leave him alone, they sent him gifts and financial support, but then they also stood up with him on the truth of the gospel. 
Uh, unlike others and other churches that struggle with uh, grabbing hold to the truth of the gospel, we had the Corinthians that began to doubt Paul's authority and to attack him, the Galatians that were being tossed to and fro by false teachers, those that were in Philippi stood firm to defend and to confirm the gospel of truth. Man, that had to be so encouraging for Paul. He looks back and he thinks about all the work and the effort that he put into this church, and he sees that they are not only loving on him by sending good gifts, but they are standing firm on the gospel truth, and they're proclaiming it to others. And so this partnership that Paul has established, we see it fleshed out in the heart and the hands of the church in Philippi. But his affection goes further than that. He says this, How I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. How I yearn for you all, for God is my witness, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul is helping them to understand that he is not just throwing words into the air. He is trying to firmly and definitely communicate that he is in love with those people that God had entrusted to him. And here's what's so deep. When Paul says, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, Paul is not just saying, hey, I'm imitating Christ and loving you guys. I'm like imitating Christ in this. It's actually much deeper than that. What Paul is saying right here is, Jesus is expressing his love for you through me. The affection that is coming out of me to you is as if Jesus is sending his love and affection through me to you. Confession, when I read this, I cried because it is so amazing that Paul is communicating that I'm not just loving you with regular Paul love, but I'm loving you with the same intensity and amount of love that is as if Jesus is standing right here saying, I love you. Do you love people like this? Has anyone ever walked away from you saying, that's how Jesus loves me? That's how God loves me. Have you ever walked away from someone saying, that's how much Jesus loves me? That's the type of affection that Jesus has for me. And it just brought me to tears because I just began to think about my own life. I mean, am I loving people with that same love that people walk away from me and they're like, that is what it looks like for Jesus to love and care about me. The Philippians knew what it was like because Paul was an example of that. And so Paul, while he is sitting in prison with an uncertain future, man, what he cares about and what he is concerned about is them. We see this in John chapter 17, right? At the very end of Jesus' conversation with his disciples, before he makes his way to the cross, what does John 17 communicate? It communicates that Jesus is on his face before the Father, not just having a long prayer about what's happening to him, but he prays for the believers, for the disciples of today and the disciples that were to come. Having a heart like this 
is born out of a heart that is desperate to be like Jesus. The only way that we can love our brothers and sisters in this way is if we are absolutely, positively desperate to be like Jesus. And that is what Jesus expects. And when we say that we're following Jesus, it's not just a catchphrase. We are saying that we yearn and desire to walk and talk and care and love like Jesus so that when people spend time with us, they know what it's like to spend time with Jesus. Can you say that's true about your love? I know I can't all the time. But that's the goal and the desire that we should have as the people of God. We should not just settle with saying, hey and goodbye, what's up, how's it going, and then leave one another. But we should love each other as if Jesus was the one that was standing here loving us. And I feel like the church would look way different if we began to be like Jesus and how we love and interact with one another. This is the intimacy that brings joy inside of us. This is what it means and further looks like when we write people's names on our hearts and we we put them in our heart. It's a risk. It's a sacrifice. It can be hurtful and painful at times. But those type of actions come out of a heart that is desperate to be like Jesus. And so, in light of the joy that Paul has experienced and the love and affection that he has in his heart, it only makes sense that the last section of our text is a prayer. It only makes sense. Now, now I need to teach briefly on prayer, that as we are praying, we're not just throwing up words in the air, or we're not just saying some things that we just came up with, we're not just making up stuff on a whim— we are communicating with the author and perfecter of our faith. We are communicating with the one who created all things with words from his mouth and sustained all things at the same time. We are communicating with the one who sits high and looks low and cares about every worry and concern of your life. And when we have a right view of who God is, it then changes how we pray. It changes what prayer means to us. It changes how we interact with the Lord in prayer. And so when Paul ends this section by praying for them, it's a crescendo. It's like the big thing. It is the biggest act of love. He's saying, I love you guys so much that I'm not going to sit here and pray about myself and the concerns of my own life and the things that are going on. I'm about to talk to the Lord about you the Lord who began this great work in you and will complete it to the end. I'm going to talk to the Lord about you because that's how much you mean to me. And so finally, the the final point, this final section is simply this. Paul expresses his joy through a joyful prayer for the Philippians. Paul expresses his joy through a joyful prayer for the Philippians verses 9 through 11. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God.
First, in verse 9, we see that there's a petition, that in his prayer he has some prayer requests. And he first says, he is praying, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Now, note, he does not give an object of the love. He doesn't say that I pray that your love for God will abound more and more. He doesn't say I pray that your love for one another will abound more and more. He doesn't say that I pray that your love for the nations will abound more and more. But in general, Paul is saying that I pray that your love will abound more and more and more. And so the idea is that as the Lord answers this prayer, that the love of Christ that's in them will just spill over and go toward the Lord and toward others. So he's teaching something about the love of God, right? That as we grow in the love of God, the natural direction for that love should be towards God and towards others. He doesn't have to say it. He doesn't have to explain where the love of God goes. As the love of God in us abound more and more and more, it overflows. It spills out toward God and towards others. Now, what does this love look like? And the world teaches us and models to us all types of love. How do we know how to love others like God and like Christ? I'm glad you asked that question. It is found in Scripture. He says, with knowledge and all discernment. Paul, like how do we get this knowledge and all discernment? We study the Word. To love like God and like Christ, we have to study the Word of God and see what it looks like, which is totally different than the love of the world. So how do we love one another with this love? And Scripture reveals to us that sometimes love means telling someone no. Sometimes love means giving up of yourself. Sometimes love means saying yes when you want to say no. Sometimes love means sacrifice and pain and hurt. Sometimes love means something greater than we can understand. And so by studying the Word, it grants us the knowledge and all the discernment that we need to love like God and Jesus Christ loved. If you are a Christian and you are trying to walk this road without studying the Word, you will not look like God or like Christ. I mean, there's no way that you can make this up. There's no way that you can figure this out on your own. And so God has given us this gracious gift of His Word that we might read and that we might study and that we might gain knowledge that not leads to a big head, but it leads to proper discernment that we might walk in a way that honors Him. And next, there's an outcome. There's a, there's a reason for this. There's something that comes from this. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent first part of verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. So as we study the Word, as we read the Word, as the love of God grows in us, and as we live it out with all knowledge and all discernment, what happens is we're able to distinguish between good and bad, better and best. I mean, we're able to approve what is excellent, We're able to discern where to go and what to do, where not to go and what not to do. So as the love of God increases in us, 
And as we spend more time in the Word to discern, and what does it look like to love others and to love God? Man, we're able to discern. Uh, commentator Kent Hughes says this, quote, If God's children overflow with love to God and others, along with a growing personal knowledge of God and Christ and practical insight, they will be able to discern and choose what is superlative, the best over the second best, the best over the good, the best in knowledge of God, the best in priorities, the best in habits, the best in pleasures, the best in pursuits, the best course of action for themselves and for their families. Do you see how as we grow in our love and our affection for the Lord and we spend time in the Word, the natural progression is for it to spill out in how we live our lives? That's why if we recognize someone's life just being a little off, we can speak to them and ask the question, and how's your time in the Word? How's your, how's your relationship with the Lord right now? And if they say, oh, it's great, there's something off, there's no way that things are going great in the Word and that things are going great with God, but these decisions are anti-God and anti-Scripture. And so it's not to condemn them or to make them feel bad, but it's for them to make a heart check. Because what we see very clear in Scripture is that as we grow in our love and personal knowledge of God, that a direct outcome and result is that we're able to approve what is excellent, know what's best, and go in the right way. And there's a purpose for this. And he continues on, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There is an end goal to all of this. As we are walking in obedience, as we're growing in love and affection toward Christ and to one another, I mean, what we're doing is we're trying, we are aiming to live in a way that honors God so that when we stand before Christ, it's a good day and not a sorrowful day. And so the way that Paul is encouraging them, he's really telling them, you should be living with the end in mind. You should be living with the end in mind that when you are standing before Christ, you're able to stand pure or without mixed desires, and that you're able to stand blameless or without stumbling. And so he is desiring that they will live each and every day as if they are about to stand before Christ Jesus. Side note, we're not going to do that perfectly every day, right? Like, we sin, we do things we have no business doing, and say things we have no business saying, go places we have no business going. But what Paul is trying to do is to cast a proper vision. If you are a believer and you trust in Christ Jesus, then your goal is to be able to stand before Christ Jesus, pure and blameless, which is a work that He does in us, but our negligence of the Word can hinder that. And our negligence of gathering together and being corrected and being rebuked can hinder that growth and progress. And so Paul is encouraging them. He's praying, Father, I recognize that they cannot do this themselves, but will you increase that love within them that it might abound all the more and the more? Will you help them to discern and help them to know what it looks like to live this out so that they can decide what is excellent according to your word? and that they might live each and every day as one that is pure and blameless. And evidence of that 
is that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul is saying, well, will you help my people, the people that you've entrusted to me, the household of faith, will you help them to bear fruit of righteousness, fruit that looks like Jesus Christ, fruit that's evident that Christ is at work in them, an alien righteousness, if you will. So Paul is praying that they will grow not just for themselves. Do you hear this? Like, he's not praying a selfish prayer for them. He is praying a prayer that will help glorify the Lord, help them grow in their faith, help them impact the nations. And again, all of this is because of the relationship that he has with them. And Paul wraps it all up by saying this, to the glory and praise of God. Because it's all about the Lord. It's all about honoring Him and pleasing Him. And it's so easy to come up with excuses for not walking well, not reading and studying, not loving well. But when we keep in mind that our lives are not our own, according to 2 Corinthians 5, We no longer live for ourselves, but we live for Him who came and died and rose again. When we have that proper view in mind, then it should spill out in how we live our lives. Our greatest desire should not be to please ourselves or to honor ourselves, but it would then be to honor the Lord and to make Him known. That's Philippians 1 through 11. My prayer is that our passage today will give us the proper perspective of the gift that God has given us. Each other. What a great gift. What what a great means of grace that the Father has given us. That we live in a country where we can gather together, not just on Sundays, but any day we want. Y'all can come over to my house any day you want and we can pray together, and we can read the Scriptures together, and no one's going to knock on my door saying, hey, what are you doing? You need to break it up. My prayer is that our perspective of this family would change, and that we will live and interact with one another as if we have an intimate partnership that is founded on the gospel, and that we will love each other so much that it's not just in the words that come out of our mouths, but in the secret prayers that we have at home in the prayers that we have as we walk every single day, and that we will be so close to one another that we're praying for each other's advancement and maturity. That's what he's doing. He's praying for the advancement of maturity. My prayer is that that will be what my life looks like, that all of your lives look like, and I guarantee that if we committed to live lives like this, we would experience a joy that's not dependent upon circumstances, but is solely dependent upon the Lord, who has given us great grace and has brought us together, and He uses each one of us to stir up joy within us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that We do not live lives like this all the time. Father, we confess that we neglect the gifts of grace that you have given us, and maybe that's why we don't experience joy as often as we should. And so, Lord, I and we repent of our sinful ways, of our selfishness and our negligence, and we ask that you will help us to walk in a way that honors you. Will you help us today?
Help us to maybe identify one person that's not in our family that we can write on our hearts and that we can begin pursuing with the love of your son, Christ Jesus. And Father, we are just so excited for the day that as we as a church commit to living in this way, that more men and women will be drawn unto you. So Lord, will you use us in such a way that we represent your son and how we live and how we pray and how we love. In Jesus' name we pray.